HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first-of-its-kind virtual agritourism conference. For more information, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. <laughs> Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting not from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, but rather from the Emory Hotel in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And why am I here? Well, I'm here because there is something called the Women Chefs and Restaurateurs Conference going on at this very moment. And uh, I was lucky enough to run into my old friend, Lauren Nishan. Uh, Lauren turns out to now be the Vice President of Operations for something called RTE Cuisine, and she has introduced me to Janet Holt. And Janet, did I say that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And Janet is the um, founder and owner CEO. and CEO mm-hmm. of RTE Cuisine. So Janet, tell me, what is RTE Cuisine? Because it's super cool. Mm-hmm. RTE Cuisine is, uh, we manufacture... Uh, ancient grains and seeds. They are fully cooked, shelf-stable, and ready to eat for food service, non-commercial, commercial food service. So when you say ancient grains and seeds, like what are you talking about? Seeds that are Seeds that are low-gluten or gluten-free and that have been out of the food cycle for a while, like spelt. Yes, so uh-huh. uh, the pharaoh family includes spelt and emmer and einkorn. We use spelt 
Emmer. Emmer. I hear about Emmer a lot. Lots of people want to use Emmer now. That's very cool. Einkorn, another crop that I've been reading about in various uh, trade magazines. They're, they're sisters spelt Einkorn and Emmer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And what, is there something else besides that? Are these are these ancient grains, when you talk about ancient grains, are they gone? You can talk. Yeah, yeah. So, so ancient grains, what it really refers back to, um, when you think about most wheat that we use in breads and pastas and such, it's been um, genetically modified, not genetically engineered by any means like there's no Monsanto involvement. It's been hybridized. It's been hybridized but but truly um, it is it is modified from its original um, intent back when you know the plant itself was created to be what it is like Faro for example I believe it's the Emmer version was used with Greek soldiers back in Roman mm-hmm. times and that it was grown to be uh, taller sturdier um, crop hundreds and hundreds of years ago and it remains to be that same way today. Mm-hmm. And they have high nutritional values, right? Yeah, nutrient dense, and you know the benefits are the you know besides the nutrient dense piece that they are lower gluten and or gluten free, which are just naturally more beneficial for our bodies. Uh huh. And when so when did you found this company? How long has this been going on? It's How long been, have you been yeah, getting into yeah. trouble like this? <laughs> well, RTE Cuisine has been um, a project for the last couple of years, and uh-huh. we officially um, started the business about a year and a half ago and um, pulled the team together here, you know, in the last six months. And, you know, we're out of the gate strong and um, really excited to bring this fantastic product to the market. And now, when you say this is cooked and ready to eat, you showed me the, process, the packaging. Mm-hmm. So just to give people an idea of what we're talking about, this is like a, a vacuum-sealed package of... Uh, grains that have already been cooked, but you said it's shelf stable, so it doesn't have to. It does not require refrigeration. Right, right. So the grains, you know, the pouches, um, you know, it's it's, it's uh, a special technology where the raw grain is put in the pouch with some salt, water, a little bit of safflower oil, and it's sealed and then cooked in the pouch. So it's special uh-huh. steam spray cooked, and then uh, you know it has a twelve month shelf life. When you open the pouch up then the grain, um, that's the first time the grain is exposed, so there's no evaporation. There's, um, that's why it remains nutrient-dense, and the flavor, ah. profile, the flavor stays very, um, stays intact, so it's very high-quality flavor. Profile. Now, how, how did you know to use this technology? What's your background that you knew that you could get away with this <laughs> nifty little trick? <laughs> well, this, this goes into the, the, the question you were going to ask next, I think, is just my background. Don't reveal so, my six secrets, <laughs> Janet. <laughs> So, <laughs> I have them. <laughs> so, so you have a background in grains, is that what you're telling me? Yes. Okay. Yes. All right, describe that. So, um, born and raised in a farming, ranching community in southern Alberta. I've been around grains and uh, my entire life and have been in the food and agriculture industry for my entire career. And as a commodity trader or agri-trader, I was um, buying uh, grains, uh, and or commodities and and selling them to distribution companies and manufacturing companies and um, throughout the years relationships built and oftentimes a further processor would call me and say I've got extra product can you go find a home for it in the market so they would resell back to me this product and then I would go sell it out to the market but you you were mostly selling like corn and soy right I mean you weren't exactly being a broker for emmer and einkorn right no true but my mom bless her heart this is her this is her baby really um, we were raised with um, grains in our diet every day and they she was a big grain advocate 
um, kind of the inspiration behind this business uh, project. And um, she was inspiring farmers long before organic was a thing to grow organic and um, just very, she had her own cookbook, her own cooking show, and she was just very... In you know, Alberta? In Alberta, yeah. She was... Wicked cool. <laughs> so I've been around the grains, you know, know of them, um, and some of these are new as well. I hadn't, I'd never heard of Teff, you know, until... Uh-huh. But the last few years, I was working for a grain and um, flour milling company, and as I started seeing ancient grains, um, plant-based proteins starting to trend again, uh-huh. quinoa being the pioneer of that over the last six years. I was just, you know, keeping my eye on things, and when I, you know, as I started talking to the industry, um, especially chefs, understanding there was a problem, an opportunity to solve a problem in the kitchens with, um, you know, using grains because of the lack of um, stovetop space that you need for this type of application or uh-huh. format, huh. and um, and the ready-to-eat piece, the shelf staple piece, right, and the low culinary skill needed, so you know, all the little stars aligned and the business came. But so just to go back to, because as we were talking, you know, earlier in the day, Janet and I were sharing the fact that we both have ADD, meaning that it's very hard for us to stay on track with one question. So I, with that conversation firmly in mind, I want to go circle back to the technology that you describe uh, in terms of creating this product where it's boiled in, the, essentially boiled in, in a vacuum sealed bag. Like, where did you learn about that? Did you do the research, or was it something that you learned about through your work as a commodity trader? Yeah, it, it was um, through as my work through as a commodity trader and, and networking and just relationships and understanding with the manufacturing side of the industry, what technologies were out there, what people were doing, and you know relationships, food shows. You know, you pick up and connect the pieces, and um, met a group uh, that I felt had a very um, advanced technology, and they steam cooked it, which is uh-huh. better than boiling because the you know concept because there's no evaporation with it, and um, so the, it's a um, it's a proprietary type of technology that really helps. <laughs> it helps the grains um, stay intact, so, uh-huh. so they retain their nutrient value. Yeah, yeah. right. Much more so than and, if you and texture boiled. as well, uh-huh. um, and, and consistently cooked throughout the pouch. Um, both consistently ah. throughout the pouch and with every pouch that's being cooked at the same time in different right. um, areas of the machine. Right. So that's that's where you know the proprietary piece being so like this is the technology that we want to use is like she right. was saying when she built that relationship. There's there's other technologies out there, but this was the most ideal, and it was mostly aligned with the way that I was taught to cook grains, or that my mom the way my mom cooked grains as well. And the te- texture piece, we had the, you know, our um, catchphrase was chef quality taste with shelf stable ease. But when Lauren came on board, we added the word be- based on her um, input, texture, shelf chef quality taste and texture, because it was really a good observation that the texture was um, ideal too. So you're not getting mushy. Mushy or too al dente, where right. it's kind of like you're chewing on a nut. And you're crunching in your mouth, <laughs> yeah. Um, you where know, you're, where you're cracking a tooth on that yeah. bad boy. Yeah, yeah. So, cons in here? so, um, 
<laughs> so you use heirloom grains. I, where where do you find enough of them? Because not that many people are growing einkorn, emmer. You have black lentils, I noticed as well, which is quite unusual in this country, especially. Right. Um, where? Who do? You, how do you develop relationships with farmers to get them to grow this stuff? Or do you not need to have a relationship with a farmer, and you can just? Um, go on to the market and, and find that. Right, yeah, right. And I think part of it is just the network that, you know, I, I've spent, you know, a number of years and you just kind of know where to go, where to look. Mm. And um, we try to um, source most all grains that we can domestically. Some uh-huh. come from Canada. And there are grains like quinoa that come from South America, so that is the source. Teff comes from Ethiopia, although our, there are some growers here stateside that are growing teff. And as that growing supply increases, then we can you know, we can um, start to use more of uh, more domestic products as they come up. So we mix what we have to. The portfolio that we have in line, the um, grains that are chosen for that portfolio, portfolio are specifically um, chosen to be able to scale. So if we we use spelt because we know there's a really good supply of spelt out there. Right. Versus einkorn or emmer mm-hmm. is less of a supply. And um, and I know where to find spelt and good quality, um, you know, growers. So we that's the choice that we have. Same thing with black lentils. We know where to buy lentils um, in in supply, so that if if um, so we don't run out. Right. And we um, although we want to buy from boutique farmers and small family farms, you know, that's what primarily we would always choose first we're not always able to do that well i was going to ask you about the um you know what prompts the selections that you make and what the cost is uh, the cost differential is between buying something that's a bit more esoteric but might be kind of more exciting and interesting to the consumer um as opposed to you know buying a more conventional grain like i don't know long grain brown rice or something or carolina gold rice or something like that well, we have um, and we have a, um, a nice diverse portfolio that have um, grains that are affordable and then more exotic, expensive grains. Oh, I see. I.e., like frica. Frica is a more expensive grain. It's an old wheat and um, you know, it's green. It's kind of a green wheat. Um, uh-huh. That is, uh, you know, th- say three, four times the price of spelt. Right. And uh, spelt being another wheat, but so you have choices on both ends of the spectrum. And the same thing with quinoa, quinoa being a gluten-free seed. We've got, you know, it's a higher price. It um, is. You know, it has a complete protein or all nine essential amino acids is the claim. And then you go to sorghum, which is another gluten-free seed, but it's less expensive. It's uh-huh. you know, three or four times less expensive. Well, than sorghum quinoa. is used in animal feed as well, right? Isn't that a pretty widely grown grain? I know, I get, I'll get chastised if I forget that. <laughs> well, no, I well, mean, no, what's wrong true. with that? Well, I mean, I mean, the cows have been eating good for a long time. Yeah, I right. Gotta tell you, I mean, because uh, sorghum is absolutely delicious and it's yeah. super underutilized. I yeah. almost would think that if people knew the secret to sorghum, that the price might jump, so shh. <laughs> it's not like it's, it's not unlike the industry where you know you, you you've got um, several grains that have been used for cattle feed or animal feed for decades, and um, now they're coming back into the you know into human the human side. side. Yeah. So they they've been around. They just haven't really right. been around on our. Well, like I think about millet, for instance. I mean, I have a parakeet, so I my parakeet loves millet. All parakeets love yeah. millet, and they get dried millet sprays, and that's a treat. 
But millet is a staple grain in um, Senegal, for example. Yeah. And they grow millions of acres of millet there, and it's really delicious. I love it. It's I've eaten it a lot. It's incredibly delicious. We just had a meal at Chef J.J. Johnson's restaurant in New York City at the Henry, uh-huh. and he had a millet dish on the yeah, side of so this good. beef rib. It was incredible. Yeah, it's lovely. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. There's, the, the grains are um, they're fantastic. The flavor profiles, they, they, they have unique uh, flavors, each of right. them, and um, I, I'm a big fan. Yeah. yeah, well, you grow up, grew up with them, but I think, you know, the thing is, is that it's kind of like the way um, there's a group in Rhode Island, a young woman whose name, of course, alludes me, Sarah, somebody or other Sarah, I, I can't remember, but she started a group, a, a, an NGO called Eating with the Ecosystem, and the idea was to bring uh, consumers to, or to bring underutilized fish species to the consumer because consumers are so trained to eat the things that the grocery stores tell us we're allowed to eat. I mean, essentially, you think we have a bajillion products in a grocery store, but actually we really don't compared to what's truly out there. But they have made those selections for us over the you know past 50, 60 years. And so now we have, you know, we're only eating, uh, you know, flounder and salmon and halibut and, you know, whatever else, you know, sea trout, bass. Um, and eating with the ecosystem, they bring, she, you know, they, they encourage fishermen to use, to bring into market things like sea robin or dog shark or, you know, stuff that is not as common on menus or in the grocery store. And you're essentially doing the same thing, the same, um, you know, you're creating the same market plan in a way for grains to get us weaned off of short and long grain, brown rice, white rice. And what is the other grain we eat? Um, Wheat. We barley. well, bar- yeah. but you know, people don't even really cook barley very often, they right? Don't. Right. I mean, it's really you eat rice, you eat potatoes. Well, and that's the the secret sustainability of a product like ancient grains, uh, right. for example, like underutilized, like West Coast ground fish, for example. Um, you there know, the, you go. the the population has bounced back after sustainability efforts, um, but you know, it's difficult to fish for just one type of fish. Um, when you're, you know, trawling the bottom of the ocean. Yes. So you have to find a way to market this fish that people, now it's been replaced by tilapia, but it's more sustainably harvested. Um, and like with grains, our grains, for example, if you're looking at like a farro, it grows more in, in harmony with nature. It doesn't need as many inputs. Right. So you're not, you know, spraying, you know, with any glyphosate. You don't, you need minimal insecticide, if any at all. Actually, right. several of our products are certified organic simply because you do not need to use any chemical inputs in order to right. grow so you're not lacing prolific those, you're not putting tons yield, of fertilizer yeah. down in exactly. order to get a yield off of your your acreage exactly so um, just out of curiosity what prompts you to make the selections that you made in your portfolio well diversity was, and and you know again grains are a commodity so we you know we are um victim to weather and yeah you know crops and crop rotations etc so we wanted to make sure that if we um, supply a grain that we have substitute grains, alternative grains, for example, if someone's using a nice white gluten-free grain like or seed like quinoa, and something happens to the quinoa export business and right. and they you know they need a replacement for that, we can switch them to sorghum, which is another light white you know gluten-free grain and mild. You know, so right. we've tried tried to you know have a variety that can be interchanged with others, um, black lentils. Uh, chickpeas, and you know another good um, 
example, black barley and um, Ooh, Japanese black barley. Yeah. That sounds mm-hmm. kind of great. Yeah, I good. love barley. It's one of my favorite grains. You yeah. would love our super grain blend. It has black barley, daikon radish seed, frika, and farro. And the oh, bite yum. and the flavor of it by itself is outstanding. Yeah. You don't need to add anything to it. One of our favorites. Oh, yeah. That's it's great. It's, it's delicious. Good hit for the infomercial there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, this it's, isn't it's really an infomercial, so good, but it is. But I, I <laughs> well, it's interesting because it's it's flavors, you know, that you don't really get that type of flavor or you texture don't. often. You don't you don't get it when you certainly go to the grocery store unless you're feeling very adventurous and you want to soak right. something overnight and figure out how to cook all those grains at the same time together well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, you can go to an obscure restaurant if you're lucky enough to live in a city where they have an ancient grain menu. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's very few and far between that you'd be able to have access. Yes, I would say so. I mean, that's what that's what actually made me so interested in your product when I met you, was that it is it is a very unusual um, concept, and it seems like such a great idea to, you know, introduce people to new grains. Aside from the convenience for the chef or the restaurant industry, we're going to talk a little bit about what you're selling it into in a minute. But um, but just kind of that idea of sort of diversifying the grain part of the plate, so that we're not like you know. It's, it's kind of the same thing as, as not having just one breed of chicken or one breed of, of cattle because you, you the opportunity for disease or some other disaster to wipe it out is a very real part of food security, right? So it's, it's important to have the cultivation of these other strains of grains and uh, pulses that people are going to become more accustomed to eating as we begin to phase animal proteins out of our diet which mm-hmm. unfortunately as a meat eater that's an unfortunate thing that's going to have to happen but it is going to happen well and it's also the so, economical way to do it in ancient grains and legumes or seeds as we call them um, you know having a higher protein profile than your traditional wheat and corn you can actually lower your plate cost whether you're eating at home or at a restaurant in right. general by replacing certain amount of ounces of meat with a grain and you still are satiated and had a delicious eating experience which right. is the delicious delicious part. I mean, let's be real. That's a big part of it. As much as price, we're not going to pay dirt cheap for something that doesn't taste good unless we've been trained to like it. Right, right. So let's take a quick break here uh, for a sponsor drop. This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker's first of its kind virtual agritourism conference. Did you know that every $1 invested in tourism marketing returns on average $3 to $8 back? Not a bad ROI. Learn how to grow your agritourism business via 12 workshops entirely women-led. The local travel landscape is rapidly changing to meet the demands of the leisure, event, and corporate travel sectors. Whether you're a farmer or producer, a winemaker, a restaurateur, or a destination marketing organization, there's more opportunity than ever to capture these markets. The Virtual Agritourism Conference will provide you with insights and skills to keep your target demographic coming back for more. 14 speakers providing six plus hours of education that you can watch at your convenience anytime on any device. Maximize your time, budget, and resources, and focus on creative solutions to help your business thrive. Presented by Escape Maker and Fulton Stall Market, the full conference access pass is now available for purchase. Use the code HERITAGE2019 for $50 off a full pass at checkout. For more information and to purchase your pass, go to escapemaker.biz. That's escapemaker.biz. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Patrick Martins. I'm Brandon Hoy. And I'm Emily Pearson. Together we host the Main Course OG, where we cover food news and culture. 
Browse episodes of The Main Course OG wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. We're back with Janet Holt and Lauren Nishan from RTE Cuisine. We're talking about ancient grains and heirloom seeds. Not heirloom seeds. Heirloom grains and seeds. Heirloom grains. Ancient, ancient grains. Ancient heirloom. Ancient and heirloom, they're interchangeable. They're but we went with the ancient because it has, it just really explains what these seeds are. Yeah, it's a better marketing. It is. It is. Yeah, At least I thought so. Come on. <laughs> yeah, let's face it. That's just better. So now you are selling this into... Um, more into food service as opposed to into a consumer-facing uh, entity like a, like a grocery store. Why did you make that decision? Well, we built the business model around um, the least resistance to market, and typically um, people go to retail first. On the retail shelf, there's um, you know some there are fully cooked ancient grains. They call ancient grains, but it's brown rice and wild rice and maybe some quinoa. Right. Know, to, but our portfolio is truly ancient grain-based. We don't. It's not a rice-based portfolio. It's a, a grain-based portfolio, grain and seed-based. And we do, we do have brown rice um, as one of the options. But uh, we, you know, wanting to get to market quicker. My experience and, and, and background is food service, more food service oriented. Right. So, the, you know, naturally segued into that space. And I just am a big believer of getting, you know, I love the the commercial, the non-commercial commercial food service space. Uh, I know the challenges of retail and um, slotting fees and, you know, just the yeah, Talk a little bit about that because I, I want you, because you do know that, I want you to bring out for the listeners, like, you know, a lot of people think, like, just today, this afternoon, there we were at that wonderful, uh, you know, growing space that's in, you know, in, in St. Paul, where they're, they're, you know, it's going to be kind of a business incubator, you know, business creator, and a, and a lot of food spaces in there. And, and every, and we, so we tasted all these different foods from different small manufacturers, and they were all geared towards getting into a grocery store. And I really wished that you had been on that panel so that you could talk about why that's not always the best path. So what makes it hard to get into a grocery store if you're a new, you know, if you're bringing a new product to market? You know, what's that process about? Well, it, it takes a lot of money. So I have money. been bootstrapping, okay. you know, bootstrapped this along for the most part. And so, it, you know, it logically made sense for me to first build a foundation in food service. And then I, we are going to um, eventually have a consumer-facing package, uh-huh. an eight-ounce or individual portion. But I still personally, not no offense to retail, but <laughs> trying to avoid that space. But we will, you know, end up. We've got. We'll have an online store. We'll have uh, a way for the consumer to access, you know, the grains uh-huh. outside of food service. But it's a good foundation to build upon. It's also sure. food service was. It's always. Um, it's underserviced. And in particular, non-commercial food service. So there was a real opportunity in that market segment was starting to um, pick up uh, and have interest in having whole grains on their menus uh-huh. at the hospital level, at the corporate cafe level, you know, B&I sectors. And so there was just an underserviced area that um, there was a clear opportunity for versus going into the retail um, 
you know, retail grocery store shelf, which is very highly competitive, right. very expensive to get into. And Are you charged a fee? Are you mm-hmm. charged? I mean, I've heard yes. that you have to, like, give, you know, three cases. Like, say, I recently attended a workshop for farmers about getting their stuff put into grocery stores, local grocery stores. And there's, like, well, you have to give the first five cases for nothing. And then, you know. They want incentives. They yeah. want discounts that um, sometimes they receive and the consumer does not see. Right. Then they also want the consumer discounts. They want the marketing materials. And then you also um, just, you know, for good business, have to market yourself to consumers. Sure. Minimum, I mean, for a, a very successful a launch of a product, minimum, I, I would imagine, between at least twenty to $50,000 in a wow. marketplace. Yeah. Uh, if right. you're really going to go full full bore and, you know, we're up right. against Ancient Harvest and others who have been out there, seeds of change, um, you know, the consumer has this product and there are very strong brand names on the shelf where our product would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when it comes to chefs, I mean, when we were at the International Restaurant and Food Service Show of New York, chefs would have to ask us two or three times what exactly our product was because they couldn't believe it. It's just such a foreign concept. They, and, and especially those who cook from scratch, they're like, you mean I don't have to cook Pharaoh for Even two and a half hours? Yesterday, they're like, what? Yeah, they're like, wait, I don't understand. You know? Right, right. Um, All I have they to do really is put are it in the microwave and give, or throw yeah. it in a piece of, in a little bit of broth and give it whatever flavor I want to flavor yeah. it with or something like that, right? And the right? convenience, you know, for consumers, it makes sense because we're all constantly on the go, et cetera. But that's also why we go to restaurants and not every restaurant has a kitchen that's built to spend the time or, you know, set up to have, you know, this going. Multiple. Like for operationally, for example, you would right. have to change, you know, your operations to get a menu cycle in with a grain that took two and a half hours to cook. Yeah. You know, and, right. and then cool. And that, was, that was, that was, you know, a good, that's the good business model side, you know, uh, but um, personally, my um, inspiration was to get the grains to market and um, based on a lot of my childhood experience, porridge is one of our one of my favorite items that we have produced a 10 grain porridge and it was so that youth could enjoy whole healthy grains without for, sorry throwing it back up in your bowl like I used to when I was little <laughs> I let's just say mom's porridge wasn't as good as our porridge I see <laughs> which is why our porridge is so good Janet was committed to making a really delicious right, porridge yeah. after having that experience and, and committed to getting this too and, and then I went to college I have I have uh, young adult children and I wanted to get healthy grains in front of them at college uh, so sure. we, we did a lot of um, testing on college age kids with these grains did you? and 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 they, they love them and the convenience of them, and it really works into the lifestyle. So yeah. we're excited to get, uh, you know, uh, to take these grains to the consumer level once we once we develop a little bit of a foundation here in the right. service space. Right, right. Well, I, I love the idea of them going into a college space, and I think that colleges. I know my daughter went to UMass for a couple of years, and Ken Tung, who is the you know the food service director there, serving forty five thousand meals a day. People, mm-hmm. I mean, Plus. like huge. Um, and he has worked so hard to develop menu concepts that really are truly helpful. And, and, and by doing so, he's actually educating a whole new generation of kids about what good food is. And it can still be a hamburger or a piece of fried chicken. It's just not out of a Kentucky fried bucket or a McDonald's, you know, griddle. It's, you know, it's something a little, you know, he buys slightly 
quite a lot better quality, you know, and it's prepared in a way that is more healthful, et cetera, et cetera. And I know grains were a real big interest of his. Um, for the and probably for the very reason that we've just been discussing, it's a healthy, it's a healthy alternative to so many other things like French fries or whatever. You well, know, and you think about too, and and when you get into a large um, um, healthcare, um, you know, further education, higher education, K through twelve, or those institutional settings where they have budgets and yeah. you have to be careful of cost, grains are a much less expensive protein source than let's say, and I'm a big meat eater. I love I love beef. Chicken, pork, everything. We do. We are. But, yeah, I'm yeah, but it's carnivore. and carnivore. It fits well into their business models because it's an affordable protein to have on the menu. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Healthcare is a great application, but also in the school systems because, um, you know, as as I think most of us know at this point, most schools, public schools, had their kitchens essentially dismantled, mm-hmm. um, starting around the Reagan era. I like to blame everything on Reagan and Thatcher. I'm just going to tell you right now, that's my politics. But I think they were the end of the world as we know it now. But in any case, um, the, you know, the, these school systems do not have the funding to restore kitchens without tremendous intervention from either parents or something, some grants or something. And so this is a perfect application for them. It's, a, it's, it's already cooked. It's in its steam-proof, waterproof, mm-hmm. heat-proof package. Throw that baby into the steam table. Bob's your uncle, man. Yeah, because they're used to using a can opener for almost they are, everything absolutely. that was once fresh. Right. And something like a farro or a frica or a super grain yeah. or even rice does not come canned. No, it, does it doesn't. And it doesn't come, normally it doesn't come cooked either. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Um, so, and since what you've got in a school kitchen typically is either a steam kettle or, or deck ovens mm-hmm. and a fryolator. The steam kettles are expensive. Yeah, you're lucky if you have a steam kettle, right? Yes, But this you could just put into a steam table, open up the pouch and put it in a steam table. And it's hot by lunchtime. You just, you can heat it in the pouch, either, you know, steam, steam, um, boil it on the stovetop or microwave. Um, right. So it, it could be heated in the pouch, so you don't have to put or it in another recipe. pouch, stir into whatever your recipe is, voila. Right. Bake it if you want to. It's like you would it. take the black lentils, one of my favorite that Mark put together was tomato soup, and then just pour black lentils into the soup, stir it, and then you have this you know, delicious bite texture in the soup, and right. it's got protein. And a big protein. Yeah. yeah, right. And what could be better for hungry little bodies and minds mm-hmm. that need and to focus delicious. in their classrooms. Yes. I love Truth it. Okay, so listen, Let me tell me this. What is your competition? You mentioned uh, the two companies that already have shelf space in the grocery stores, mm-hmm. but in terms of working in a bigger arena like healthcare or education, who, who, anybody else doing this, or are you guys all on your own? We're, we're, we, um, we believe we're, we're first to market. There's a handful of mark manufacturers that have this technology, but most of them are geared toward um, CMG, individuals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're um, our competition really is cooking from scratch. Yeah. And if we had a competition, it would be trying to you know find the you know the right um, kitchens and chefs that want to spend their time and culinary talent on maybe COP items or other more, you know, other items that take more creativity. and What's COP? Center of the plate. Sorry, thank you. Which we, we, we <laughs> just could, want to make yeah, sure that yeah. everybody knows what we're talking about. Yeah. 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 And um, so cooking from scratch is, is our competition, essentially. Uh-huh. And, and how have you managed, how have you addressed, or are you at the point yet now where you have to uh, 
find distributors who are willing to distribute your, your product? Like, how are you marketing this? Aside from having the extraordinary Lauren Deshawn, you know, <laughs> work the wires for you. Um, <laughs> Be a GSD yeah. right here. Yeah, that's right. Be a GSD. Um, yeah. <laughs> we won't spell out. We won't that spell acronym. it out. You can, yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, how are you going to? How are you approaching that problem of distribution? Because that's. I mean, that's. It's, it's always a bottleneck, and yeah. it's been you know a work in progress. Before I even started the company, it was conversations with broadline, just, you know, distributors as well. All as two local. of them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Cisco and U.S. Yeah. Right. But you you know it's always you know this is the car before the horse and it's um it's always a bottleneck and we're we're at that point and expectedly we have 10 SKUs set up with Cisco and now it's about working the individual opcos and introducing the product and uh-huh. it's still a, a whole other sales cycle to get it into the individual opcos but as we you know as we build our customer base and you know it's it's pull through right so customers are requesting it then the, right. the opco houses are going to um, bring it in and by Opco, she means Cisco operating company. They're all called Opcos, yeah. yeah. Right. They're like the different. They're distribution centers, right? Um, and it, and it's interesting because you know even having something set up with a distributor, any distributor really, um, they want customers to bring that product in to order pallets and cases of product, right? Um, but then you go to the customers and they're like, yes, I want this now. And you say, okay, well, luckily we direct ship, um, but it's difficult with the distributors because we then need to have those customers who then were not at their distributor. So it's kind of a limbo. Yeah. Um, it's it, cart before it's the horse. Balance, it's more know. like two horses, you know, right. not yet with each other. <laughs> two horses that are not running yet in a harnessed. circle. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Together. Running the They're circle. They're not in the wild. same yoke. We're just yeah. going to face the, the right, the same direction yeah. right now. And we're so. and we're a small team. You know, we are a startup. We have a team of four. Right now, concentrated, and we're bringing on, um, you know, more people to support with sales. Uh-huh. Um, but we're a small team, so we all try to wear that hat of um, getting out there. Janet's been traveling a lot. We both have been traveling a lot, um, and Mark, our other teammate, um, just getting out there and evangelizing and making sure that customers know, hey, we can start you up direct ship from us, and then when we get to a point, we will be able to come into that distribution. Right into that space. Yeah. So what? What's the? What's the heart? I mean, what's the best lesson you can offer? Because we got to wrap this up. But what is the best lesson um, you or or piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs? Um, since you've obviously started, this is not your own. This is not your first time at the rodeo. To mm-hmm. coin that cliche, started her right. first business um, at eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is your best? Uh, what's your best advice for somebody who wants to start something like this? Any kind of food business. I would say uh, make sure that it's something you're passionate about. You can get behind and you know wait for the right opportunity. A lot of times, I think you know if all the stars aren't aligned and people settle for half the stars, it's more difficult to succeed. So make sure all the stars are aligned. Yeah, but it takes. I, I think. I think you could also safely say, Janet, that it takes a lifetime of experience to recognize when those stars are aligned. Yeah, yeah. And I a think. lifetime of connections, which you have made uh, through all of the different hats that you've worn as a commodity trader, as a, other you know entrepreneurial uh, adventures that you've been on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a pretty impressive story, I have to say. I'm like. I'm really into it, and I will follow it with great interest. I really uh, hope the best for you, mm-hmm. and of course for my darling Lauren here, who's mm-hmm. gonna—I know—rock the world with oh, this. Yeah, yeah. She, right? I, I work for Janet for a reason. We have a lot of fun together, and we get 
you know, the job done and yeah. with a smile. Mm-hmm. That's, That's great. A and a shot of tequila. Yeah. And a shot of tequila. <laughs> Some people go home when they make it's a the sale. Secret. That's the secret to a good business, y'all, yeah. is having a bottle of tequila at the office for happy hour. That's right. All right. Well, thank you both very, very much for joining me today. This has been great. It's been so much fun palling around with thank you here you in Minneapolis. Us. Yeah. And, you know, come back in six months. We'll talk about where you are in the next step of the process, right? Fantastic. Could be interesting. Thank you, Katie. You're thank very you, Katie. welcome. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.